Welcome to the Brady Haywood Podcast, a podcast where we look at engineering failures and disasters. This is Apollo 13, Part 1. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win. Billy Rubin. Jim Lovell had never heard of it before, but it was the cause of all the trouble. And it all started when he got a telex telling him to attend a military briefing in Washington, D.C. Now, at the time, he's at the Navy's Aircraft Test Center in Pax River, Maryland. He's 29 years old, his wife is six months pregnant, and he already has a four-year-old daughter and two-year-old son. He joined the Navy, became a naval aviator, and now he's a test pilot. And to get this job, he had to go through test pilot school, where he graduated top of his class. And this class had included an impressive bunch of people. Among them were two men by the name of Wally Shakira and Pete Conrad. Then one day, he gets a telex telling him to attend a military briefing at the Dolly Madison House in Washington, D.C. Now, there are a number of things about this briefing that are odd. Firstly, he's told to go to the Dolly Madison House, not the Pentagon. And he's told to wear a suit, not his uniform. And then there's the secrecy about it all. He's told to tell no one he's attending, not his wife or friends, nor anyone in his squadron. It's really odd. But Lovell takes this sort of stuff seriously, so he doesn't tell a soul. He gets up the next morning, heads outside for the drive to Washington, throws his overnight bag in the car, and then he notices that he's not the only one leaving. Pete Conrad seems to be leaving as well, as is Wally Shakira. But by the time Lovell arrives in Washington, the secrecy is not that important anymore. He is one of about 30 people in a room, Pete and Wally are there too, and there are lots of other naval aviators and people from the Air Force. Because this is 1958, and just months earlier, the Russians had launched a satellite called Sputnik. So the US had responded by creating a new organisation the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA. Now, the enormity of the task NASA has ahead of it is insane. They want to put a man in space, but to do that, they have to do two things. They have to actually build a spacecraft, and they have to find people willing to make the trip. These people are going to be called astronauts, or star sailors, and NASA has worked out the qualities they believe these astronauts will need. And then they pass these requirements to the Air Force and the Navy, and the Air Force and the Navy spat back 110 names. Jim Lovell is one of those names. Now, Lovell watches a man take to the podium and address the crowd. He tells them he is Dr. Robert Gilroot, and he says they are here to discuss Project Mercury. He explains that they want to put a man in space within the next three years. And they're going to do this by putting him in a capsule and then put this capsule on top of an Atlas booster, which is a ballistic missile. Then they want to fire this missile and capsule into space. He says some of the very men in this room will make these first flights. Then he says he's happy to take questions. So a hand goes up and someone asks, 
didn't these Atlas boosters regularly blow up on the launch pad and never get into the air at all? And Gilrid says, yes, this has happened, but they're working on it. Then another hand goes up. Has a prototype of this capsule been built? Gilrid replies, no, but they have some blueprints. Then another question. How will an astronaut control this capsule? And Gilrid says, they won't. The mission will be remotely controlled from the ground. Then someone asks how the capsule will land. And Gilroot says there won't be a landing as such. These capsules, when in orbit, will fire rockets. And these rockets will knock the capsule out of orbit and then they'll splash down in the ocean. Then the Navy will fish them out of the water. Then someone asks what happens if these rockets don't work. And Gilroot replies that that's why they want test pilots. Then the meeting breaks up. Lovell is dumbfounded. This idea seems completely crazy. Certainly very exciting, but still completely crazy. So the group from Pax River, including Lovell, Conrad and Shakira, head to the Marriott Hotel to talk. And one of their main concerns is, will this be bad for their military careers? Will they look like a silly bunch of rocketman wannabes that'll be ridiculed by squadron mates? And in the end, they sort of decide that this thing probably will be bad for their careers. But despite all this talk, Jim Lovell has already decided he's going to apply. He's been obsessed with rockets since he was a kid, and there's no way in the world he's going to pass this up. So he decides there and then that he wants to be an astronaut. And despite all the doubts people expressed, everyone seems to have made the same decision as Lovell. They're going to give this space thing a go. So 32 men take up the invitation and submit their applications. They're sent in groups of six or seven to the Lovelace Clinic in Albuquerque, New Mexico for a week of medical tests. And these tests are mad. These men who are in the prime of their lives are being tested and tested and tested and this goes on for seven days. There are cardiac x-rays, hyperventilation tests and intestinal tests. There are even fertility tests and still more tests go on. Their sinuses are probed, their stomachs pumped, their prostate glands squeezed. It's a nightmare. And there's a problem. Lovell finds himself sitting in front of a doctor and the doctor asks him if he's been ill lately. Lovell says he doesn't think he has. And then the doctor tells him his Billy Rubin's a little high. Lovell says he doesn't even know what Billy Rubin is. So the doctor tells him it's a natural liver pigment and that he has a little too much of it. This can happen when you've been sick. Lovell says fine, but he's not actually sick now. And the doctor agrees, but then says there are plenty of other guys in the program who don't have bilirubin that's a little high. And Lovell can't believe it. Of the six men in his group, only five are told to report for further tests. Lovell has failed. NASA doesn't want him. And he's sent back to Pax River. But he isn't alone. Weeks later, Pete Conrad's back too. He doesn't get in either. And not long after, Lovell is sitting in his family quarters and watching TV as NASA introduces its first ever astronauts to the world. There are seven, and one of them is Wally Shakira. And over the next three years, Lovell watches as NASA moves from success to success. There's the 15-minute flight of Al Shepard, the first American in space. There's John Glenn's Earth orbit flight, and through all this, Lovell keeps working away and eventually ends up in Virginia Beach at the Oceana Naval Air Station, where he's a flight instructor. Then one day, as program Mercury is coming to an end in the summer of 1962, Lovell is flicking through a copy of the Aviation Week and Space Technology magazine, and a headline catches his eye. 
The headline reads, NASA will add new astronauts. It goes on to say that NASA expects to add between 5 and 10 more, and almost immediately Lovell decides he'll volunteer again. He'll never forgive himself if he doesn't, despite the risk of being told he isn't good enough. But he knows this time it'll be so much harder. He's older, he's 34 now, and everyone wants to be involved. There's going to be a lot more applicants this time around. But he doesn't care. He applies, he sits the tests, and this time he makes it through the first set. And he's sent for interviews. And while still at Oceana, on the 13th of September 1962, someone answers the phone in the squad room and calls to Lovell, It's for you. Lovell asks who it is, and he's told the caller won't say. So he gets up and walks across the room to the phone. On the line is Deke Slayton, the Director of Flight Crew Operations for NASA, the man that decides who gets to be an astronaut. Slayton says he's calling about the new astronaut crew. Lovell says, "Mm mm-hmm. Slayton says, I was wondering if you'd like to come work for us. Lovell's so nervous, he says, would I? Slayton laughs and says, that's what I'm asking you. Lovell stammers, yes, yes, of course. So Slayton tells him what to do next and hangs up. Then Lovell calls his wife, Marilyn. When she answers the phone, he says, we're moving. She says, where? Lovell says, Houston. She says, come home. You should be the one to tell the kids. Dead. 
but Lovell, Swigert, and Hayes will try the most dangerous landing techniques ever attempted to continue America's exploration of the moon. An announcement from Launch Control and Chuck Hollis. Saturn Launch Control, T-minus 9 minutes, 58 seconds and counting. The third stage start tanks are now beginning their chill down. The third stage scheduled to ignite at 9 minutes, 22 seconds into the mission. Jim Lovell is woken that morning just before 9 a.m. He spent the night in the manned spacecraft operations building along with his crewmates. The men get up, have a very quick medical examination, and then they head for the pre-flight breakfast of tenderloin steak, eggs, orange juice, coffee, and jelly on toast. And Jim Lovell is the commander of this mission. And sitting beside him is his lunar module pilot, Fred Hayes. He'll make the journey down to the surface of the moon along with Lovell in the lunar module. And there's Jack Swaggart, command module pilot, who'll orbit the moon while they are on the surface. The three men finish breakfast and have a briefing. Then they head off to suit up. Biomed sensors are attached, spacesuits and headsets are put on, then their glass helmets are placed over their heads and clipped into place. From this point onwards, the three men are breathing pure oxygen. The VIP viewing area just out to our left is jammed with about 4,500 guests. Vice President Agnew, Chancellor Billy Brown of West Germany, U.S. Uh, Secretary of State William Rogers head the list of distinguished guests. On the causeway, another 7,000 people are jammed into another NASA guest area. And for the local folks, the Floridians and the visitors down here, the Brevard County Sheriff's Office reports there are 100,000 people out along Route 1, which is the closest major highway to the Kennedy Space Center. And the Indian and Banana Rivers here are jammed with boats and uh, people waiting for the launch. This is live coverage of the launch of Apollo 13. At 11.07 a.m., they leave the manned spacecraft operations building and they get into a small transfer van and they drive 13 kilometers to the site of the Saturn V rocket. When Lovell gets out of the van, he looks up at this 36-story high monster, the largest rocket ever built by the U.S. at 110 meters long. Supercooled liquid oxygen and hydrogen are wafting out of the rocket, making it look like it's bleeding steam. Lovell, Swigert and Hayes walk towards the tower and enter the service elevator. They take it up to level 9, then they walk across a gantry, a bridge between the tower and the rocket. And as they walk across the gantry, Lovell sees the ocean before him. There's the slightest streak of clouds in an almost clear blue sky, and there's a fresh sea breeze coming in over the Atlantic. Lovell continues across the gantry and into the White River, an enclosed room that envelops the end of the rocket, or more correctly, the command module, capsule where they'll spend most of their time on the mission. They're greeted by Gunter Vent. He's a German-American, and he's been around since the beginning of NASA. He's the one who helps the astronauts into their capsule one of the last people you see before you go into space. Lovell is the first to enter the command module at 11.32 a.m. There are three seats inside, called couches, and Gunter helps Lovell down into the center couch. Then Lovell slides across to the left couch, and he's strapped in. Then Hayes is helped in, again into the center couch, and then he slides across to the right-hand seat, and then he's strapped in too. Finally, Jack Swaggart has helped into the center couch and strapped in as well. But the interesting thing is, Jack Swaggart, at least up until a few days ago, wasn't even meant to be here. 
We had a problem with measles earlier this week, as I'm sure you all know. The measles hassle started last Monday with Charles Duke, a member of the backup crew. Duke came down with the measles, and since the prime crew worked so intimately with the backup crew, everybody got exposed. A series of extensive blood tests here at the Cape in Houston and at the National Institute of Health in Washington confirmed that Ken Mattingly, the command module pilot, had no antibodies to ward off the measles. He could come down at any time. So Mattingly was scratched from the mission, and that's where a civilian astronaut named Jack Swigert comes into the picture. Red? Swigert is the eighth replacement astronaut to make a space flight. He's bigger, almost six feet, and heavier by 40 pounds than the now grounded Mattingly. Air Force trained and a crack test pilot, rookie civilian astronaut Swigert is still a bachelor at 38. One of his hobbies is photography. And like the 15th century Italian monk, Fra Murrow, who mapped Mother Earth, Swigert's job is to map the moon with a massive new close-up camera. Gunter says goodbye to the astronauts and the hatch is sealed. The time is just after 11.44 a.m. It's T minus two hours and 29 minutes to lift off. For the next two hours, the men wait patiently, going through checklists and final procedures. At T minus 90 minutes, the closeout crew fit a boost protective cover over the command module. Then the gantry swing arm, known as swing arm number nine, rotates away by 12 degrees. It only moves by 12 degrees because in an emergency it needs to be able to swing back quickly. But when there's only five minutes remaining in the countdown, this swing arm will retract away completely. Lovell looks around the command module. This is the conical-shaped craft attached to the top of the rocket. The three men are lying on their backs, looking up towards the top of the cone. In front of them is the main instrument panel covered in switches. Now they won't need to do much during the launch. These are needed for the flight to the moon. The Saturn V rocket will largely do its own thing. It's got its own guidance system and its job is to put them into orbit around the Earth, then to shoot them towards their rendezvous with the moon. And the men continue to wait. For Lovell, who's been in a rocket many times before, this is a whole lot easier than it is for Swagger and his. I'm speaking now from firing room one, launch control. A big room, perhaps three times the size of mission control in Houston. It's a bright, well-lighted room, filled with consoles painted in a light shade of gray. Walls are cream-colored, and there are windows to the rear, huge slanted windows through which people can see the launch pad three and a half miles away. But most of the 500 people in this room won't watch that rocket. They'll be too busy following the launch from console positions, reading out data, looking at black and white television from the 85 camera positions that monitor every critical phase of the Apollo 13 operation. Houston concerns itself with the mechanics of space. Launch Control concerns itself with the mechanics of space hardware. And very soon now they'll find out how well their preparations succeed. Roy Neal in Launch Control. Now to Snell at Mission Control, Houston. As he does, if all is well, the men at the surrounding consoles will push nine buttons lighting nine green bulbs on the director's console. That will mean, very simply, that from flight surgeon Dr. Willard Hawkins to rocket man Bill Brady through Steve Bales, who tracks the tracking gear, all is ready for the handoff from launch control at Cape Kennedy. An added starter here in mission control is Ken Mattingly, who had planned to spend this past hour on the launch pad. Astronaut Mattingly, with a big smile and no sign of measles at all, sat down next to capsule communicator Joe Kerwin, whose greeting was, Sorry to see you here. David Snell, Mission Control, Houston. The Saturn V has three stages. In a way, it's like three separate cylindrical rockets stacked on top of one another. 
Each is made by a different contractor and each plays a different role in driving the rocket into space. The first stage at the bottom is 42 meters long and inside are two huge fuel tanks, one on top of the other. One is kerosene and above that is a tank of supercooled liquid oxygen. There are 800,000 litres of kerosene and 1.3 million litres of oxygen in this stage. And the oxygen is supercooled to minus 183 degrees Celsius. It'll burn for about the first two and a half minutes into the flight. Above stage one is stage two, which is 25 metres long. And this stage is very different. This stage is fired with liquid oxygen, again supercooled to minus 183 degrees Celsius and liquid hydrogen, which is chilled to minus 253 degrees Celsius. It'll burn from about the two and a half minute mark to the nine minute mark. And then there's stage three, known as the S4B, the only part of the rocket that'll fire twice. It'll fire around the nine minute mark and it'll complete putting Apollo 13 into Earth's orbit. Then it'll fire again to push it out of Earth's orbit and send it on a trajectory towards the moon. Now this second manoeuvre is known as the Translunar Injection, or TLI. And once this firing takes place, the engine is shut down and Apollo 13 essentially coasts towards the moon. But all this is ahead of them. And in the meantime, Lovell, Swigert and Hayes lie there. This is Apollo Saturn launch control, T-minus 5 minutes, 27 seconds and counting. Now as we move into the final phase of the countdown, we're receiving go-no-go checks from various elements of the launch team. The spacecraft test conductor, Skip Chauvin, gave the test supervisor a spacecraft ready. At that time, on our large status board here in the firing room, the green light came on behind the spacecraft. The green light now is also on behind the emergency detection system. Standing by for more checks, the uh, mission director, Jet Lee, from the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston, says we are go for launch. Showdown of the S-4B stage. Showdown of the S-4B stage being completed at this time. S-4B will ignite into the mission at 9 minutes, 22 seconds. Swing arm number 9 now is retracting to the full retract position. Swing arm number 9 coming back to the full retract position. And the director of launch operations, Walt Caprian, has given Apollo 13 a go for launch. We're now approaching the four-minute mark. At the T-minus four-minute mark, we'll be standing by for Jack Baltar, the launch vehicle test conductor, to say that his launch vehicle team is ready to carry out the final phase here of the countdown. At the T-minus three-minute, seven-second mark, we will get the ignition sequence start. This will put us on an automatic sequencer. The team here in the launch control center will be monitoring red line values. These are such things as temperatures and pressures, which we do not want to either go above or below. A final communications check now. The astronauts on the Astrocom circuit and launch operations manager, Paul Donnelly, during his final check, said good luck, head for the hills. Beside Lovell's left knee is the most important lever in the command module. It's the reason he, as the commander, is in this left-hand seat. It's the abort lever. If anything goes wrong, it'll be his job to twist this lever and they'll abort. And as this rocket climbs, there are a whole range of different abort procedures the crew will work through. Lovell will hear words like Mode 1 Bravo and Mode 1 Charlie, and these modes all relate to different methods and procedures the astronauts use if something goes wrong and they need to abandon the launch. But before all that, they need to get off the ground. 
So at T minus 8.9 seconds, the ignition sequence will begin. The center engine will fire first, then two diagonal engines will fire, then the opposite two will fire. Engines will then go through a power-up procedure to bring them up to full thrust. And when all five engines are running, they'll consume 13 and a half ton of fuel per second. And at this point, the Saturn V will be hunting for launch. These huge engines will be twisting and gimbling to keep the rocket facing in the right direction. Then after 10 seconds, they'll clear the tower and control of the mission will move from launch control in Florida across to mission control in Houston. Then the rocket will begin pitching and rolling and changing trajectory so that Saturn V can get on its correct course. Then they'll go through the region of maximum dynamic pressure. Now this is the point in the flight when they'll still be pushing through the atmosphere and the aerodynamic forces on the rocket will be at their highest. And then it finally hits Lovell. This is actually going to happen. He's going to the moon again. He's been so busy doing the final checks that he hasn't had time to process it. But now, from an emotional perspective, it hits him that this is really going to happen. At the T minus 8.9 second mark, we've passed T minus 30, T minus 25 seconds and counting, and Apollo 13 is go. T minus 20 seconds, T minus 20 seconds and counting. 17, guidance release, 15, 14, 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8. Ignition sequence has started. 6, 5, 4, 3, Now they are set for staging. The engines of the first stage will shut down, a ring of explosives around the rocket will detonate and they'll physically chop the first stage clean off the rocket. This will expose the engines on the bottom of stage 2, then stage 2 will fire and it'll push them further on their way. Then they'll jettison the launch escape tower and abort procedure that's no longer needed. Altitude now 17 miles coming up on staging. Report the onboard engine has shut down as scheduled. We confirm inboard out 13, you're looking good. Coming up on 30 miles altitude. 
And then it starts to go wrong. Of the five engines of stage two, the center engine is supported on a crossbeam, and this crossbeam is starting to vibrate. It's at risk of tearing itself apart if these vibrations grow. And if it tears itself apart, it'll destroy the rocket and the mission will be over. So the Saturn V automatically shuts down this center engine. This saves the mission, but the engine has shut down two minutes and 12 seconds earlier than it should have. And this drop in trust is a big deal. Uh, Booster reports that the inboard engine uh, shutdown was a bit early. Uh, we're continuing to burn on the uh, four outboard engines. Jim, uh, Houston, we don't have a story on why the inboard out was uh, early, but the uh, other engines are go and you're go. Everything fine. One engine was the, both the first and second stages of the Saturn rocket cut out the center engines first and then the outboard four engines. Both of them have five engines. But one engine cut out early on the second stage and they'll need a little more boost, a little more time from the third stage engine. At six minutes, 40 seconds. This is still looking good. Your gimbals are good. Trim is good. For the orbit they want. You have S4 to orbit, Jim. Roger, we have S4 to orbit. They will get a little more burn out of the S4B. It isn't going to take much. They wanted 125 miles. We still have four good engines on the Saturn second stage. We show an altitude of 96 nautical miles, 545 downrange. They wanted 125 miles orbital altitude, and uh, they're already at 114 miles. Uh, the uh, Houston mission control. At seven minutes, 45 seconds. Booster reports we are go. All four engines remaining uh, looking good. The early shutdown of the center engine uh, would, would cause no problem. We would run a little bit longer than normally scheduled. Houston looking good at eight minutes. 118 miles altitude, 12,167 miles an hour. Our predicted shutdown time on the second stage is nine minutes, 48 seconds. Flight Director Milton Wendler getting a staging status now from his flight controllers. 13 Houston, you are go for staging. That's a change. 13 Roger, go for staging. Added a longer burn to the second stage. An extra 20 seconds of power from the four engines remaining on the second stage. This will conserve fuel in the S-4B in case they want it later. Staging. They're staging right now. 
And level report staging. That's early. And there's four years of using. Roger that, Jim. Thrust looks good. That also came slightly early, but the thrust is fine on the third stage of the Saturn rocket, the S-4B. Everything is going according to plan, despite the loss of one major engine. And now they will really begin to pick up speed. They'll pick up uh, another 2,000 miles an hour in only two minutes, as compared to the climb-up. And that climb-up was mighty slow, but beautiful. This is where they're leveling off. They're reaching orbital altitude that they want. They are only a mile or two short of their original target, and they'll probably get that. They are leveling off in space, in other words. Team Houston at 11 minutes. Your go predicted cutoff on the S-4B is 12 plus 3-4. Over. That is an next much longer burn. About 39 seconds longer. Uh, just about right, Bob. Good, good thinking. That is a much longer burn on the S-4B, and that's to get them the speed they need just to maintain orbit. They're 124 miles up, southeast of Bermuda. Seco. There's the Seco, Jim. We're looking at the disky. Mr. safe. Thank you, Joe. That's Jim Lovell confirming the word from the ground from Joe Kerwin, another astronaut, who just said, don't mention it, because he passed the word that the S-4B, although burned overtime, is safe for continued operations. They're in orbit. They can make their preparations to go on to the moon, which takes place, uh, the launching toward the moon takes place a revolution and a half from now over Australia. Now, your preliminary orbit down here is 102.5 times 100.3, and everything is looking good. That's the old veteran. Yeah, and this is his last space flight, a man who already has 500 and some odd hours in space and will, by the end of this space flight, flight have spent a month of his life above the Earth. Nobody else can say that. Gemini 7, Gemini 12, Apollo 8, and now Apollo 13. That's a long way to go. Despite all the hassle of the Stage 2 engine shutdown, the Saturn V has put Apollo 13 in an orbit that is within 1.3 miles per hour from where it should be. They are travelling around the Earth at 17,429 miles per hour. What seemed like a crazy scheme in the Dolly Madison House in Washington DC is again reality. For the fourth time, NASA has put Jim Lovell in space. By Apollo 13, no Americans have been killed in space. But astronauts had died, and by far the blackest day for NASA was the 27th of January, 1967. In the run-up to this day, the whole Apollo program had been under huge pressure. Mission Control was having problems with its computers, astronaut training was falling behind because of issues with simulators, and the command module design was showing lots of problems. And one of these problems was the wiring in the spacecraft. And on the 27th of January 1967, NASA is conducting a plugs-out test on the command module. The craft is fully pressurised with pure oxygen. Inside are three fully suited astronauts, Gus Grissom, Ed White and Roger Chaffee. Now this pure oxygen environment is important because when you're in a pure oxygen environment that's pressurised, you certainly don't want a spark. Now up to this point, this simulated launch test had been plagued by communication problems. 
Grissom had said, how do you expect us to talk to you from the moon when we can't even communicate from the pad to the blockhouse? At five hours, 31 minutes, and four seconds into the test, one word crackles across the voice loop. A voice says, fire. This is followed by a frantic, we've got a fire in the cockpit. And then we've got a bad fire, get us out, we're burning up. This last sentence turns into a scream at the end. The entire exchange has taken 12 seconds. The pad crew rushed to the command module hatch with fire extinguishers. Shockwaves and secondary explosions knocked them off their feet. Some even get close enough to try and open the hatch, but the heat burns through their gloves. Smoke's all around them, and at this stage, it's too late. When the command module is opened later, the inside is blackened and charred. The remains of the three astronauts are found strapped in their seats. And in the days that follow, mesmerised people wander around mission control, trying to process what has happened. But one man knows what's happened. And by Monday morning, he's decided he's going to talk to the men in mission control. Because as far as he's concerned, he feels he's let the astronauts down. So on Monday morning, Gene Kranz, a flight director in mission control, walks up four steps to a small podium and he looks out over a room of flight controllers and a few others. There are a hundred people there. Kranz is in his mid-thirties, was Air Force and he'd flown in Korea. And he tells the controllers, himself included, that they have screwed up. He says they were too gung-ho in the program and they should have prevented this tragedy. He tells them, we are the cause. We were not ready. We did not do our job. Then he tells them from this day forward, flight control will be known by two words, tough and competent. And he tells them to go back to their rooms and write tough and competent on their blackboards. And he tells them never to erase these words. Then he says, Each day that you enter the room, these words will remind you of the price paid by Grissom, White and Chaffee. These words are the price of admission to the ranks of mission control. And now, three years later, Gene Kranz is about to discover just how tough and how competent mission control really is. Because he's lead flight director of Apollo 13. It's now over two days into the mission. Apollo 13 is about 200,000 miles from the Earth, with another 40,000 to go before it gets to the moon. Kranz's shift has been a quiet one, and it's coming to an end. Soon he'll take his white team off console, and they'll be replaced by flight director Glenn Lunny's black team. But before this handover, Kranz's team will manage a live TV broadcast from Apollo, as well as look after a few housekeeping tasks, and then they'll put the crew to sleep. Kranz stands up and looks across the four rows of consoles in mission control. The front row of consoles look after where Apollo 13 is in space and where it's going and contains the retro Fido and Kaido. The second row keeps the men and the spacecraft functioning properly. There's the surgeon, the Capcom, the ECOM, the GNC, the Telmu and Control. Now the Capcom or capsule communicator is the only person in the room that can speak to the crew and they're always an astronaut. And on shift tonight is Jack Lausma. Now beside the Capcom is the ECOM and they look after the health of the command and service module and they make sure all the electrical and environmental systems are working well. And tonight on duty is Cy Liebergott. 
Now, behind this row is Kranz's row, the flight director's console, where Kranz is standing. He's in the middle, and to his left and right are other consoles which look after activities and instrumentation on the flight, such as the INCO. And behind Kranz, in the fourth row, are reps from the Department of Defence and a few other people, with a key person being Chris Kraft, the Director of Flight Operations. He's a legend in the room, and he's also Kranz's boss. Then behind that last console is the viewing room, the big glass-windowed room that looks out over mission control. And Kranz knows that inside it are Jim Lovell and Fred Hayes' wife and kids. And then the TV broadcast begins, and an image of Fred Hayes appears on the screen before them. Kranz sees that Jim Lovell's both the cameraman and narrator. Lovell begins by saying he's going to give a tour of the spacecraft, starting in the command module, called Odyssey, and moving into the lunar module, called Aquarius. Now, the command module is where the astronauts began their journey two days ago. And as Lovell pans around the camera, they can see the three couches where the astronauts were strapped in, and in front of them is the Battleship Grey instrument panel. Panel covered with over 500 switches, push buttons, thumb wheels, all they need to control the command module. And as they finish the tour of the module, Fred Hayes ducks down and into the tunnel that connects them to the lunar module, the LEM. And when Hayes arrives in the LEM, he's actually upside down because the top of each craft are connected to one another. Lovell follows, and as Hayes moves around the LEM, Lovell keeps talking. Now this LEM is small, it's cramped. Lovell says it's about the size of two telephone boxes. There are two triangular windows and two small instrument panels. And there are no seats. This craft is flown standing up. It's purely designed to fly in space and land on the moon. Now the service module is the third piece of kit and Lovell can't show it on TV. So the configuration of the spacecraft is that the lunar module is connected to the command module via the terminal and the command module is connected to the service module. So we have the spidery looking lunar module connected to the conical command module connected to the cylindrical service module. And it's the service module that provides the vast majority of the power, oxygen and water needed to complete the mission. If something happens to it, the crew are almost doomed. So the plan is that when they reach the moon, Lovell and Hayes will enter the limb close the hatch and fly the limb down to the lunar surface. Swaggart will continue to orbit the moon in the command and service module. And once Lovell and Hayes have completed their two moonwalks, they'll fly the LEM back up into orbit around the moon and reconnect with Swaggart in the command module. They'll ditch the LEM, then just before re-entry to Earth, they'll detach the service module. Then this command module with the all-important heat shield on the bottom of the cone will re-enter for splashdown. And as Lovell continues his TV show, the Capcom Jack Lousmet tells him it all looks great. And meanwhile, Mission Control is sorting through the housekeeping tasks they need to do when the broadcast is over. Cy Liebergott, the ECOM, comes on the voice loop in Mission Control saying, Flight ECOM. And Kranz replies, Go ahead, ECOM. And Cy says, At 55 plus 50, we would sure like to have the cryostore. All four tanks. And then GNC, the Guidance Navigation and Control Officer, comes on the loop saying, Flight GNC. Go ahead, GNC. We would like to re-enable the other two quads for the manoeuvre. Now this reference to quads is to the thrusters around the spacecraft, which it uses for moving. GNC wants them enabled so they're ready for a manoeuvre after the TV broadcast. 
So the spacecraft have thrusters that they use for simple manoeuvres. And then for larger manoeuvres, they can use the engine on the service module. And the LEM also has its own engines for the flight down and back up from the lunar surface. And then there's the cryostar that the ECOMS requested. The service module has tanks containing oxygen and hydrogen. And these gases are stored at supercooled temperatures, which keeps them in a sludge-like state. So they're in a sort of liquid, gaseous and solid state. In technical terms, they're at supercritical density. Now, one of the things that the ECOM has to do is to manage the quantity in these tanks. But the sludgy nature of the gases makes it difficult to get an accurate quantity reading. So about once a day, the ECOM asks the astronauts to stir these tanks, which then allows for an accurate reading of quantity. And that's just what Cy the ECOM has requested of Kranz, the flight director. So on the large screen in front of Mission Control, Cy can see Lovell zooming the camera to get a better picture of the moon outside the LEM window for the TV broadcast. And then Lovell says they're closing out the inspection of the LEM and they're heading back into the command module. Then Hayes, as a joke, and this is a joke he's played a few times already, turns the cavern repress valve, which causes the ships to hiss and experience a gentle thump. Lovell hates this and he visibly flinches. Then he says to the camera, every time he does that, our hearts jump in our mouths. And then Lovell tells Lausma they are ready to close out the broadcast. And he says to the camera, this is the crew of Apollo 13 wishing everyone there a nice evening. And as he finishes, the picture in mission control goes blank. And that's it. Broadcast over. And now Houston is back to business. Lovell floats back into the left-hand seat of the command module and Swaggart takes the centre one. Lausma says, we'd like you to roll right to 060 and null your rates. And Lovell says, okay, we'll do it. And then Lausma says, and we'd like you to check your C4 thrusters. So Lovell says, okay, Jack. And Lausma adds, and we've got one more item for you when you get a chance. We'd like you to store up your cryo tanks." So Lovell gets ready to do the thruster adjustment. Hayes has closed down the LEM and he's floating through the tunnel and Swaggart flicks the switch to stir the four cryotanks. Down in mission control, Sai is watching his console, waiting to see the result of the stir. The seconds pass since Swaggart flicked the switch. Nothing happens immediately. Then there's a loud bang and the whole spacecraft shakes. Swaggart is strapped to his seat and he feels the craft shudder beneath him. To Lovell it feels like a thunderclap. His first thought is Hayes is messing with the repress valve. He turns towards the tunnel. He's angry but Hayes isn't smiling and to Lovell he looks terrified. He says it wasn't me. Then Lovell realises that what he's heard and felt has never happened on any of his previous space flights. Something very wrong is going on. Lovell looks at Swaggart and Swaggart looks just as confused. Then an amber warning light flicks on on the panel above Swaggart's head. Then an alarm comes on in Hayes' headset. Then another warning light comes on on the instrument panel. It tells them they've lost power in main bus B. If they've lost power in main bus B, this means they've lost half the power in their spacecraft. 
Down in mission control, Sai Lieberget's data goes wild. It disappears for a few seconds, then comes back, but it makes no sense. Sai knows that if these results are real, then something terribly wrong has happened to the spacecraft. The data for Oxygen Tank 2, which holds half the oxygen for the ship, has fallen to zero. To Sai, it looks like Oxygen Tank 2 doesn't exist anymore. And what Sai doesn't know, and what the crew don't know either, is that Oxygen Tank 2 is indeed gone. It's exploded. And this explosion has not only destroyed the tank itself, it's blown out the side of the service module, ripping off a panel and hurling it into space. The ship's entrails are hanging out from the shattered side and gas is spraying wildly. And this gas is pushing them around, which causes the service module's thrusters to automatically fire to correct the movement. Lovell and the crew are now getting bounced around. And what neither the crew nor Houston know at this time is that their service module is fatally wounded. The module they need to survive in space will die in a matter of hours. And they're 200,000 miles from home. And Houston is frantically trying to understand the data before them. And chatter opens up on the comm loop in mission control as everyone tries to work out what's happening. Up in the craft, it will be Swaggart who first comes on comm, saying there's a problem. Then the Capcom Lausma will ask Swaggart to repeat himself. But it won't be Swaggart who'll repeat it. It'll be Lovell. In clipped and calm words, he tells Mission Control there's been a problem. It will be these words that kicks off the mission to save Jim Lovell, Jack Swaggart and Fred Hayes. Houston, say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. 